0: What is one of the ways people verbally and audibly express their passion and seriousness of how they feel? If you think about it. You don't have to guess. I'll just come out and tell you by swearing. Yes, by cursing and cussing and swearing. And don't act like you don't. I hear you. Jesus hears you on the I-10. We all hear you but by cursing, cussing, and swearing. And so what I have behind me is a screen of the worst curse words there is. And you're gonna tell me which one is the worst, okay? Go, Derek. Oh, just kidding. Or am I? But since the history, the history of swearing is both birthed in Roman and medieval taboos. But also the history of cursing and swearing and cussing is also birthed in religion. In religion, what we call swearing stems from the idea to swear by something. It's been called oath swearing, where God speaks strongly to reinforce a promise that has been made. Now, even though it's mutated in what we have today with modern profanity, we still do in minor, gentler ways have forms of oath swearing, don't we? We typically take an oath with someone by saying, cross my heart and hope to die, super dark. (laughs) Or, what? you know, we all go up to people at work or our friends and go, hey, pinky swear, because we're all nine. Like, pinky swear me, you'll do this. We put our hands in Bibles and courtrooms and say what? I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We also say things like, I swear in my grandmother's grave. We say, may lightning strike me dead if what I'm saying isn't true. These are our human ways in which we swear, and they are all, like I said, the darkest methods possible. By our relatives' graves, by our own death, and by destructive natural forces. Because we must swear by something beyond our frail human ability. We must swear by something bigger than ourselves. But if that's true, now think about this, if that's true and God makes oath swearing, or God makes oath swears in Scripture, then God has a problem. By what can he swear by? If God says to you and me, I love you with an eternal love. Theo, I will take care of you forever. Lily, I'm going to watch over you forever. By then, what does he prove it? How does he swear by it if there is nothing bigger than himself? The reason that matters is because how then are we to trust his words and his promises? This is also a question for those here who are not Christians or don't follow Jesus. What lengths does he go to prove his existence? What lengths does he go to prove that he can be known and trusted by you with your life? As we'll see and be encouraged by today, he goes, friends, all the way. He does make oaths and he does swear by something, and it's a game changer for how we are to see God. So for those who want to know where is the reinforcement that God can be trusted with my desires, my difficulties, my determinations, my destinations, then Hebrews chapter 6 is your bread and gospel butter. And it was with also not only with us, but also with the original audience, if we remember. The original audience that this letter was written to, that being a church of men and women who were tempted to pull up anchor and drift away from the harbor that's called Christianity. All because they were battling with the idea of God's assurances with his promises. Like many of us are probably doing today. And their pastor who penned the sermon, that is the book of Hebrews, he is spreading that rich country crock butter. You guys remember country crock in that brown tub? Man, that was delicious. Drink it up. He's spreading it on like faith reinforcement. Nice and thick like. And because for six chapters, their pastor, who we call the stranger, that's our small little, you know, cheesy attempt to respect that we don't know who wrote this letter. But what we gather from the way that he did write it or how he wrote it is that he is outrageous. The author of this book is outrageous and he's brilliant and he's wild and he's over the top and everything has an exclamation point behind it. I mean, he's just insane. And his church right now is tempted to do a walkout. They're tempted to leave. And he is pleading with them, wait. They're all saying, I'm ready to be done. And he is saying, "Just, just, just listen, please. He says, wait, wait, wait. God has sworn to you. God has made an oath to you, church. So before you make your decision, shouldn't you at least know it? Before you make your decision, shouldn't you at least hear what the swearing is? He's telling his church, I know life hasn't been, you know, Eggnog pie or, you know, a piece of pie. I know that the situation is the absolute worst. I know that things will be draining. But do you want to know what God has to say about it? That's what he is telling his church. Do you want to know what God has to say about all of that? If so, then read with me verse 13 of chapter 6. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I surely will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The stranger saying, I know your life isn't cherry pie, but but, but, but here's your ticket. He goes, Remember Abraham. Now, if we're honest, by me saying all dramatically, remember Abraham, it doesn't really tickle our funny bones. We kind of just go, nito speedo, cool. But to the original audience, the mention of Abraham would have rested their attention fully as if I stood up here right now in the middle of a an sermon and said, let's talk about Donald Trump. We all would have just all of a sudden been quiet or listened or had your full attention. See, by the stranger dropping this name, it not only gets their attention, it also gives him what's considered solid, credible argument for his next charging statement. And the stranger loves to use Abe. If you want to write down in your little journals, we have journals for everybody, don't forget. If you want to write down in those, this is what you can write down, that he loves to use Abraham because he uses an example of Abraham ten times. Why? Because Abraham, to people who are wavering, Are curious, or wanting reassurances is a prime example because Abraham possessed what we all desperately want, and that's hope. Abraham had hope. He's exhibit A of a man who trusted God against all odds. Another New Testament book calls Abe the father of all who believe. And friends, if you've never spent, I'll just say this as your pastor, if you've never spent time dissecting Abraham, you are missing out. You see, at the heart of the book of Genesis is his story. No one can understand the Old Testament without understanding Abraham. And when we're introduced to him, it's quick and it's fast-paced and it's a lot of drama. God appeared to Abraham and invited him to go. God shows up to Abraham and says, get. Get going. Leave the city. And by doing so, God promises him he would multiply his people and that God would bless him. That's God's promise. But he's got to go and he's got to get on the move and he's got to go to what's just called the unknown. You got to get out to the unknown. For many of us, moving to L.A. probably felt just like that. I have countless conversations with people in our church who are like, I moved to L.A. The, the great unknown, but a, great, a place with, with great promise. Is that not Los Angeles? Unknown, but a place with great promise. Five years from now, I'm going to have an Oscar. <laughs> 10 years from now, I'm gonna be running capital Records. I guarantee it. <laughs> but for Abraham, in that day, you just didn't pack a U haul and like check your family's Instagrams and make long distance phone calls. No, far from it. To move hundreds of miles away meant permanent separation from family and friends. <clears throat> permanent. Then there was uncertainty like for Abraham would the people be hostile? Where will I live? Can I speak the new language? Can I make an income? So essentially, you can go hardship, unknown, scary, exhausting. This is what God just invited him to. The exact same emotions that the strangest church was feeling. That's why Abe is a perfect illustration. And if we're honest, these questions and concerns are the same things that we deal with. Well, how do I do this? How do I manage? How do I get by? Scary, exhausting, frightening, unknown. The difference is for Abraham is. The stranger's pointing out he obeyed. He listened. He had hope. Can the same be said of us today? To make matters harder, the name Abraham means, I don't know if anybody knows this. You can write this down as well. The name Abraham means exalted father. So as he's moving to these new cities, it was like, Abraham, exalted father, where's your kids? I don't have any. Odd your name. Exalted Father. And see, for their culture to not have a child was to not have a future, a legacy, an inheritance, a purpose. So Abraham, Abraham and his wife are purposeless, you could say. They are living a wasted life. Enter God's promises, God's swearing, God's oath. A promise given to a barren couple, not only that you will have one kid, but countless. And so if they obeyed, had hope, stayed the course despite the insanity of that promise, the whole point is that then there's hope for us. So if you're thinking, who cares about Abe, Casey, get on with it. Well, hold on. The main thing I want to show this morning is that the dynamic between God and Abraham is of immense importance that will have serious impact for yours and my life now. Paul the Apostle wrote in another New Testament book, it says, for whoever, whatever, excuse me, For whatever was written in former days, Abraham, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what, Ross? Hope. Hope. We might have hope. The promise or the metaphor of Abraham is tied to the stranger, his audience, to them, and to us so that you and I lay a hold of hope. But still, we should be asking, but Casey, where is the insurance of those promises to have the hope? We get it. God makes promises. These people knew that. Where is the insurance that we can have that hope? This is what the, uh, the stranger's audience wants. See, I think we all get, even maybe if we're kind of lingering or curious about the Christian faith, that God makes promises, but does he keep them? So look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. We talked about this earlier. So when God desired to show more convincingly, that's what we all want, the convincing, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled the refuge, have had made strong encouragements to hold fast to the hope set before us. This unchangeable God has two unchangeable aspects. And these two unchangeable aspects are his promise and his oath. So no, if you're thinking oath and promise are the same thing, they are not. They are not. Theologian A.M. Stibbs explains it this way. He goes, we have a double ground of confidence. In God the promiser who gives us his word, and in God the guarantor who confirms it by his oath, there is therefore no possibility of being deceived or disappointed. Now, I I think promises are a pretty wild thing. If you've ever thought about what a promise is, promises are wild. They're insane. They're a bit unnatural. See, promises, what they do is when a person makes a promise is they reach out into the unpredictable and they make one thing or something predictable. And the unknown future, and the unknown places like Abraham traveled to, something is predictable. The point of the oath is to underline or to ensure the truth of what has been promised. It's been said you can think of an oath to a promise like an exclamation point. And all of these columns are painted in bright neon painting, these words, this understanding of verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. The reason that is important is because whether we realize it or not, to doubt his oaths and promises, well, doesn't that make him a liar? 1 John 5, another New Testament book says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God, has made him a liar. God is so serious about his word. God is so serious about truth. And if you think of it, it is Satan, the devil, who is called the father of lies, not the father of hate, not the father of anger, the father of lies. And it's not even that that God's like, no, I'm just not going to stand and lie. It's not that God chooses. It's impossible for him to lie. Like, it's impossible for me to give birth, or it's impossible for me to say no to burrito, or it's impossible for me to listen to Imagine Dragons. (laughs) You can't do it. Those are impossible as it is for God to lie. And if God were to lie, guess what? He is no longer God. He is no longer God the moment he tells a lie. But Casey, eh, this isn't showing us the assurance. There's nothing higher than himself. Okay, let's get into it. Do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them or your phonage, and go to Genesis. <laughs> turn in your Bibles. What is this, church? Yes. <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. I don't make you guys do this enough. We've gotten so used to screens. Mm Mm-hmm, Cassandra, she knows. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, Andre. He's over here like this. What do I do? Oh, my gosh. Just joking, you know. Genesis chapter 15. Now please listen to me clearly and closely. If what we're about to read, if read, understood, prayed over, invited in, it has the power to change you and I forevermore. Abraham has listened to God. He's left his country, he's met hardship, and now he is losing steam, much like the current audience of the book of Hebrews, and maybe like some of you. Genesis 15, chapter, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not. Because guess what? He was fearful. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. What will you give me? I continue promiseless. So basically saying, God, I need some reassurance, this big guy. I need some reinforcement. What will you give me? I'm curious, how would you prefer God to answer your needs? How would you prefer God to answer your, his promises for you in your life? Some of us may be a miracle. God, set my car on fire, and I'll know if I should marry her. Like, are we looking for that? God, do you want God to write it in the clouds? How do you want the Lord to give you what you want, what you hope for? Do you even know? I believe this is a sticky idea because we wish God would confirm His promises the way we want, not the way He wants. And that way being a way that makes sense to our flesh. Look at verse 5. I love this about God. And He brought Him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. And God throws a little of this in here, if you can. If you are able to, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God is using visuals to inspire hope. And he says, look up, Abraham, be heaven facing. And yet, verse eight, look at verse eight. This is Abram's response. Oh Lord God, how am I to know? I hear your promises. I see the stars, but how am I to know? Collective church, it's here where Abe is at his most desperate, and by being at his most hopeless state, he has just reached the threshold of hope. Allow me to explain. We have to become hopeless, and we have to give up on ourselves and our ability, our attempts, before we'll be excited about the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hopelessness is the entrance to hope. These Christians, these Hebrew Christians are they actually the most prime state to receive and experience sure and steadfast hope. That's why their pastor, the stranger, is like, what are you doing leaving? Where are you going? This is it. This is now. See, at those moments of death, life comes. And God is changing the narrative for Abraham and through him to us in this chapter with no longer so you say, what am I waiting for? But you need to question, change the question, Abraham, to, but who am I hoping in? God is changing the message inside of Abraham. And it's here God gives the reinforcement. And get low to this because this is wild. Verse 9 of chapter 15 of Genesis says, He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then somehow Abe has it all. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like Mary Poppins bag, you need this? Whatever. And then verse 10. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid them each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Gross. Like that just sounds gross. It was me, I was like, God, I don't know what you're doing. This is gross. Sounds more like a butcher's manual, right? How is this reinforcement? Because it doesn't like to make a sense. But Abraham knew exactly what was going on. An oath was being prepared. Abe lived not in a contractual culture like ours with signatures and legal documents. The way you did it then was that you would play out the consequences before the others. Both people would play out the consequences. It was a partnership and they would do it. This is how the bargain would begin. If you didn't hold up your bargain, you would be like the butchered calves. This is what God is about to do. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God is symbolized in this vision as a smoking firepot, and God goes through the butchering. This moment, don't let this slip by and go through our fingers. This moment, I believed eternally transformed Abraham. At this moment, his hope and his faith like a tower because of his terrifying, sensational, oath-swearing God. God is swearing on himself, but not only himself, get this, the destruction of himself if his promises fail. I've heard God's oath swearing in Genesis chapter 15 spoken this way, that if God fails, it's as if God cries out to his people, may my shape become void. May my infinity become limited. May my being be cut in half. May my immortality become mortality. May my power become powerless. Essentially, Abraham, if I fail you, may I no longer be God. And then God essentially, you know, goes, that's what I swear by. That is my oath to you and to you and to you and to you and to me. So God went through. Now we have to watch Abraham go through to hold his end of the bargain. God, he has to hold. Look at look at uh, verse... Somebody find the verse where Abraham walks through. It's not there. Base drop. Where's the moment where Abraham holds up his end of the bargain? In author C.S. Lewis's biography, it tells the small story of his war companionship with a buddy where he was asked by a dear friend if either one of them were supposed to meet death. Would you care for our families? Sadly, the dear friend of C.S. Lewis was killed in action. Lewis, being a man of his word, was determined to pay what he had vowed. Yet, as he helped this widow of his dear friend and her children, what Lewis discovered was that she was horrible. He would show up and give her money and help her with food, and she was ungrateful. She was rude. She was arrogant. She was domineering. She was impatient. And this whole time, Lewis is like, what? I'm, do- I'm doing this for you. But through it all, Lewis refused to give up. No lack of willingness or receptivity on her part changed his promise. This is the same with God in Genesis 15 all the way to Hebrews chapter 6. And it should shock us like a bolt of lightning to our core, so much so that it electrifies our hope continuously. Yes, the first shock is that God would ever walk through the butchered halves. The second shock being that since Abe was asked not to walk through it, that meant God was making the promise for both of them. No, there's no expectation, Abraham, you're going to walk through this. I'm going to do this. Not only will I be torn apart if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn apart if you don't keep your promise. I will bless you even if that means I am sawn asunder like sacrificed cattle. Is there a stronger oath swearing in all of this world? Is there someone, something stronger than that? I don't believe so. I asked earlier, how do you wish God would reinforce his promises to you? Well, Abraham experienced the most extreme reinforcement acting out ever. But that was for Abraham. What about for us? What about for you and me? Well, I'd say we got the real thing. God was torn into pieces. Not because his promises failed, but because he fulfilled his promise on this very day. See, we could not hold our oaths. So God takes our inability and our side of the bargain and says, hmm, I'll do it. And like Abraham, not having to walk through the sacrifice, we too were not asked to walk through. And this is what's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus because what we have to be fixated upon when it comes to the gospel, what we have to understand it is it is not fair. There is nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is fair or balanced. Meaning, I think a lot of us have this idea that the gospel is a cooperative effort. Or that God helps those who help themselves. Or that God comes to us and asks us to fulfill our contracts. Or God is expecting an oath from us that is it's a partnership. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not some fun daddy-child like, craft project. So in a way, if we understand that, I guess we can say God's infiniteness did become limited. His being was cut in half. His immortality did become mortal, and his power was surrendered to powerlessness. And the application of that, what we see for Abraham and what should be for us, the application of that is the formation of hope. The application of the gospel is the formation of hope. Apologist Rabbi Zacharias says it this way. It's all encompassing of what we've been talking about, but he goes outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no hope in this world. Is there some? Is there an ounce? There is no hope in this world. That cross and resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity. Wherever you go, ask God for wisdom or how to get that gospel in, even in the toughest situations of life. Imploring God, I need the gospel in this. I need the gospel in this. So the next time we are wondering, God, where are you? When life is a stinker, ruin, like, right? God, you have not helped me out lately. It's fr- it's their friends or it's their beloved, as the stranger would call us. He would say, "Look up to the cross." I have written here that. I think my wife told me I shouldn't say it, but I really want to say, Abraham was told to look at the stars. We're told to look at the scars. But then I couldn't live with myself. So I didn't use it. I decided not to use it. But it's powerful. It's super powerful. Look, at, but look how the stranger makes this connection with Abraham, oath-keeping, and our present condition. Look at verse 19. He says, We always notice how the stranger throws himself in their collective state and their collective need. He always does this. They're literally considering leaving Christianity and he's always like, no, we are just as hopeless. I am with you. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you notice The stranger just defined the purpose of hope for you and I in this life. So what is hope supposed to do for us? It makes us sure and it makes us steadfast. What's the point of having hope in this life? It makes you sure and it makes you steadfast. Why do I need hope? It makes you sure and it makes you steadfast. But the imagery of a spiritual anchor is interesting. It's very interesting. First off, let's just get this out of the way. If you're a Christian, you have a tattoo, it's of an anchor. I know every Christian here has an anchor tattoo. I can only make the fast assumption. And two things if you don't. Either you're not a Christian, or you haven't gotten the anchor yet. I know what's happening. Do I have an anchor tattoo? Like 11 of them. It's all over. Or it's Greek tattoos, Greek writings, servant, whatever. But the spiritual image of anchoring is really interesting, and it's only used here in all of the Bible. Only here. It's interesting because if you actually, it's kind of fascinating. If you go to the catacombs beneath Rome where all the early Christians were buried, there's three prominent symbols on their gravesites, their tombstones. Anybody want to take a guess? It was, it was a dove and it was that fish thing that you all have in your cars or whatever. And guess what the last one was? An a Nike swoosh, An anchor, Yes! <laughs> The anchor for Christians is this arching idea that even when life is brimming with difficulties and insecurities, there is an anchor like stability, rootedness, fixedness, connectedness. Now, though, even though I think the idea of an anchor is fun and strong, it's not, like I've said, what we want. Nobody, I would say our flesh, does not want an anchor. I know what I want. I can't speak for you, but I know what I want. I want a sure and steadfast escape hatch. I want a sure and steadfast Royal Caribbean cruise with like midnight chocolate buffets. But the stranger words here are raw and they're real because it automatically implies storms, hurricanes, and tempest winds. Commentator Matthew Henry, we are in this world as a ship at sea liable to be tossed up and down and in danger of being cast away. Our souls are the vessels. The comforts, expectations, graces, and happiness of our souls are the precious cargo with which these vessels are loaded. Heaven is the harbor to which we sail. The temptations, persecutions, and afflictions that we encounter are the winds and the waves that threaten our shipwreck. We have need of an anchor to keep us sure and steady, or are we in continual danger? Gospel hope is our anchor. So, collective church, it would behoove me not to ask what might be your anchor in this life. Maybe that's too broad. You could say this. What is it that gives you confidence to live this life? Is it your job? Is it your talents? Is it your looks? Like, I know I can get by with my Ryan Gosling build. I know I could do it, but I don't want I don't, to hope in Jesus. Is it your dreams? Is that what's pushing you forward? I haven't... Got my dream yet? What is the one thing that will always be there for you? Sadly, and honestly, if we think it's our spouse, if we think it's our kids, if we think it's our finances, we are in a world of hurt. Nothing is unchangeable other than God. But what should rock our little boats there? See what I did? Verse 19. Most anchors, this is so rad. Look at verse 19. See, most anchors belong in the sea floor, but where does this one? Where does this one have its steel grip? Look at verse 19. This is so great. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The anchor is fixated, fixed behind a curtain. Not the seabed floor. It's sort of an odd place for an anchor to be. But, do we see what the book of Hebrews is doing? It is an on-ramp. He is such a um, masterful at doing transitions, the author of this book. It is an on-ramp to get us right back into Melchizedek and and high priest theology. See, the only person allowed behind the curtain in the most sacred of spaces, of God's holy presence, are priests. And Jesus is our great high priest. Now, I saw this image last week, and I wanted to share it with you. I thought it was sort of fascinating. Um... This was used by the Huguenots during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I in the 1500s. And that Latin phrase there means anchor of hope. But I think what was fascinating about this image that was used for so long is if you notice the hand coming from the heavens. The hand coming from the heavens, Christ's firm anchor-like grip. Christ, if we do our math right, is the anchor. So let's just do this for verse 19. Let's just replace the words for absolute clarity. We have the sure and steadfast Jesus, our forerunner. Friends, I'm going to end with this, but I want us to really take with us as we go into this, this idea of a forerunner. Jesus has gone before us. That word forerunner is used only here in the Bible, and it refers to a smaller boat that would carry this anchor of a larger boat, and the forerunner would bring it in and drag it in, and then it would drop it so that the larger ship would be able to be steady at the harbor. You see, it is only in Jesus we have a sure and steadfast, secure hope. And the stranger tells us in verse 18 it is set before us. That word set before us means lay a hold of it. Like a meal, like a banquet. It is right there. Eat it up. Hope is right there. Grab it. And I would say the. If, so, if you're like some of us are probably thinking how i would say first acknowledge Go into our time of response with this first acknowledge by acknowledging that you are hopeless without him saying god i know what my flesh wants in promises and oaths but i do not know what my soul wants only you do as a sure and steady and steadfast anchor of the soul you know what my soul needs hence i have to acknowledge that you ultimately know best i do not in a few minutes, there's going to be people up against that wall, people up against that wall who want to pray for you. If you are facing tossing pain, temp, you know, turning confusion, storm-like fear, frustrations, ebbing and flowing anxiety, go to them and allow the forerunner to pull you in and say, pray for me. Make a line. We don't care. If you're saying, I don't even know who these people are, perfect. A step of uncomfortability is the first step to greater comfort. Go and receive prayer today. Second, first one's acknowledge we are hopeless and needing of other people, like our royal priesthood we've been talking about the last couple weeks. The second is focus, meaning when Abe asked, but how do I know? God didn't go, you fool, you moron, you don't even know. God showed him. God focused him on the gospel. We need sight of Jesus. Christians, communion is here in the front, on my right and on my left, in stacked cups. Come up here, grab it, and focus and put sights on Jesus. In a lot of ways, communion is Genesis 15 symbolized. These representative elements of a broken body and split body, get them into your gut. Remember the absolute lengths, this time as we respond, that God went with oath swearing. Amen? Let's pray for our church for our time of response.